morning. <laughs> I know I printed it. Uh, thank you to the worship team. That was really good, as always. I was thinking during the song that if you take the first letter of every one of their names, it spells the word decaf. <laughs> and if you take the first letter of their last name, it spells the word oosh. Continuing our series this morning. Three years. Um, the five alones. Before we do that, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is from you, and that it is true that you are always faithful to your word, Lord, that your word is trustworthy. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, for the redemption that comes through your Son and his love and the death that he died so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we continue. Lord, I pray that it may be honoring and glorifying to you and faithful to your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 500 years ago this month, Garland was born. No, um, <laughs> 500 years ago this month, the history of the church, of Europe, and of the Western world were forever changed in the town of Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, a list of grievances against corrupt and unbiblical practices, at times unbiblical practices within the Roman Catholic Church. And the impact of that event continues to ripple throughout the world. Luther was not the first person to call for reformation within the church. Other movements perhaps had followings, but didn't have the political support, and Luther had that, which afforded him a certain level of personal safety, though his martyrdom seemed almost inevitable at times. Another key difference between Luther and influential reformers who preceded him was the invention of the printing press. This allowed a mass volume of pamphlets and other materials to be produced. Luther was also likely helped by the fact that other Reformation movements spread elsewhere in Europe during this time. Amid church abuses, Europe was at a tipping point. And while Luther was not the first to call for reform, it was his ministry that most significantly tipped the Reformation movement over the edge. Less than 20 years later in England, King Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church and started the Church of England in 1534. Reforms were also happening in Switzerland, most notably in the town of Geneva, eventually under the leadership of John Calvin. The Anabaptist movement sprang up, who favored believers' baptism over infant baptism. These groups were not always in agreement with each other, and sometimes they had severe conflicts with each other. But they were all in agreement that not all was well within the church, and that there were changes which were necessary. 
We're continuing a series commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation entitled The Five Alones. Faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, and glory to God alone. These doctrines stand out as being the key doctrines to the Reformation and ones which presented key doctrinal differences between churches in the budding Protestant movement. But there were certainly many more doctrines that were significant to the Reformation. In other words, these aren't the only doctrines that were important to the movement. But they're some of the most important. And so this morning, we look at the idea of Scripture alone, or in Reformation language, sola scriptura, which is Latin for Scripture alone. Um, the main idea, this is something I've, I've thought about throughout this past week as we uh, continue the, the series. Really, I think the main idea to, to get across this morning is that the Bible is God's word and it's our authority because it's God's word. We're going to be looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're actually looking at several different passages this morning. Um, the doctrine of sola scriptura is something that scripture teaches, but it can be a little bit complicated because there isn't one passage and one passage alone that says sola scriptura. Like it's it's about taking the Bible as a whole and what it represents. So, like I said, we're looking at 2 Timothy 3. The, the, verse, the passage you have in the bulletin is verses 14 through 17. Really, the major focus is verses 16 and 17 of that passage. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is God's Word. And he goes on to say that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's God's word. God wrote it. He did it through human authors. But God inspired people to write his word. I have a question. Who decided what books were in the Bible? There is a canon, but who decided that? God decided. It is God's word. If I take my water bottle and I drop it and I recognize that it fell, did I decide on the laws of gravity? No. I recognized that it's there. It's the same way with how scripture was discovered. The early church received the scripture. They didn't decide the scripture. And they received it by being consistent with the Old Testament, by being consistent with the gospel message, with being of apostolic authority or people who were associated with the apostles. Mm -hmm. 
Perhaps some of you have heard before that there were these other books that got left out of the Bible. They got left out of the Bible because they were so antithetical to the rest of the Bible and to the gospel that they were so obviously not meant to be part of the Bible. So people, man, did not decide what was in the Bible because the Bible is God's word. I think even among Christians, we often have too low of a view of Scripture. The Bible isn't just a collection of fables or stories. It's the Word of God. There are people who read the Bible like it's a self-help book. The Bible isn't a book to help yourself. It's a book to help your soul. It's God's Word. When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows was DuckTales. Scrooge McDuck, the richest duck in the world, and his, he was raising his three nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. In the show, Huey, Dewey, and Louie were part of the Junior Woodchucks, which was kind of like the DuckTales equivalent to the Boy Scouts. And whenever they would be confronted with a situation where they didn't know what to do, they would always turn to the Junior Woodchucks guidebook. I think we often treat the Bible like that, like it's some sort of manual to life. And to be fair, the Bible does have much to say about a variety of topics. It does offer wisdom in relation to how to live life, how to love your spouse well, how to raise your children. It has wisdom in regards to how we spend our money, how we utilize our time. Certainly, all of that is in the Bible. But that is not primarily what the Bible is about. The Bible isn't merely a guide to life telling you to be a good person. A lot of people think that about the Bible. The Bible does say a lot about morality. But it's a morality that is rooted in the righteousness and goodness of God. The Bible is a book about the glorious God who made all things. A God who is all good. And God's incredible grace to a humanity that has chosen to reject him and to sin against him. That grace given through Jesus, to whom the Old Testament points, and the New Testament records the events of his life, most notably his death and resurrection, that is what the Bible is about. A few weeks ago in Sunday school, we talked about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And there are prophecies in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus. But I think what's important is to consider that the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. It's not about individual prophecies, but about an entire divine plan for salvation that points to Jesus and that was fulfilled in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the events and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus being in accordance with the scriptures. Everything in Jesus' life is in accordance with the Old Testament. And that is part of the key to how we interpret and understand the Bible. That it's a book about God. That it's a book about Christ. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, people who spent their whole lives 
dedicated to the study of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So studying the scripture, but in the process of that, not realizing that it all pointed to Christ, that it's all about him. So yes, the Bible does have a lot of practical wisdom and a lot to apply to our daily lives. But it is primarily about God, his goodness, his glory, and his gospel. And the Bible is the primary way how we learn about God. Because the Bible tells us God's story. It tells us what God's like. While nature points to God's existence, Nature doesn't point to God's gospel. We need his word through which his gospel is communicated to us. And people using his, utilizing his word to share his gospel with others. God's word communicates the message of salvation. One of the things that is absolutely clear in the Bible is that God speaks in Genesis chapter 1, we see God's speech and his power in, the, in accordance with what he has said. Genesis 1 verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. We keep seeing this pattern in Genesis 1. God says it, and it happens. God speaks things into being, and they happen. We see it in the covenants that God makes. God promises his faithfulness, and he is faithful. He promises Abraham that through him all the nations will be blessed, and God does it. He promises David that an heir will come from his family whose kingdom will never end. And it happens. Everything that God promises, he does. His fidelity to his word is tied to his character. Everything that God says he will do, he does. Everything that God declares to happen, happens. And because God has always been faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, we can have confidence that God is going to be faithful to all that he has promised. God promises in Hebrews 13, or I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God promises he will not leave us or forsake us. He reaffirms that in Hebrews 13, 5. God promises that he'll take our sins away as far as the east is from the west. The promises that God makes, and there are many. God isn't wishy-washy. He isn't learning as he goes. He isn't figuring things out. God is in total dominion over creation. God's promises are ones that we can always be assured of and count on. But it's valuable 
to know the things that God actually does promise. And that's an important point I think that needs to be made on the scripture. Because I think we have a lot of ideas, and our society has a lot of ideas that we think are biblical that are not. God doesn't promise that we will be free from suffering if we follow him. In fact, the Bible repeatedly says that there is suffering because we live in a fallen world and because we're following Christ. But I think sometimes people think Almost like they've made some sort of deal with God. Where if they decide to trust in him, that's your end of the bargain. And it's his end of the bargain that you should not suffer, that you should have a life of ease. God's word doesn't make that promise. The Bible doesn't promise that your life will be easy when you come to faith. The Bible doesn't promise the things that it commands of us. That forgiving people, loving people, going to church will always be easy or what we want to do. That we should do those things, that those are good things. But it doesn't promise that every time it'll always be just perfectly easy. It doesn't. Because we're sinful. We like to think that it's a promise in the Bible that God just wants me to be happy. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. I'm not saying God is anti-happiness. But that's not the main reason why he made us. Happiness is fleeting. Your team wanting a game makes you happy. Getting a great deal makes you happy. Pizza makes you happy. But that's not soul-satisfying joy. God wants us to have soul-satisfying joy in him, supernatural joy and delight in him, and in his goodness, and in his gospel. All of these things society tells ourselves that we might want to believe, but that aren't actually promised in the Bible. And how do we combat that? By knowing what's in the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is God's word. How much of it is God's word? How much of it is not God's word? None of it. Standing on the promises of God. Rejoicing in the promises of God. But to do that we have to know God's word. And not create a God in our own image. And then invent a theology that he never promises. Because I think when people do that, they get disenchanted with faith. Because they believe a lot of things that weren't even biblical in the first place. To know what God's word actually says. If it's not in God's word, we're just speculating. Adding our own opinions. There's no authority in that. Scripture alone is our authority that reveals to us the truths about God. Really, that's kind of a summary for the doctrine of sola scriptura. That scripture alone is our authority that is infallible from God. That's not to say that the Bible tells us everything about God. That was never the point of the doctrine of sola scriptura. 
There are many things about God that we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. We're on a need-to-know basis. If we need to know, God would have put it in his word. So the scripture affirms that we know what we need to know, or at least that we can know what we need to know, if we know God's word. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it well. This is from Article 1, Section 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. The Bible tells us what we need to know. We can trust God's promises because they're in his word. And that's part of the importance of the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Because again, we can have a lot of opinions about God. But the only infallible source of revelation about what God is actually like, what he is actually doing, comes from his word. Because God has revealed himself in his word. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. It is all God's word. Every doctrine we need is found in scripture. All of scripture is breathed out by God and is useful, the text tells us. It points to the will of God. I think we so often get caught up in this idea of God having a personal will for your life. Another idea that isn't entirely biblical. Almost like there's this path cut out. And you need to figure out that path for you. Otherwise, any sense of joy or fulfillment, you're just not going to have. Who do you marry? Where do you work? We've put so much pressure that we have to figure out what this path is. God's will for your life is for you to love him and to have faith in his gospel and to love people and to serve God. That's not to say we shouldn't be prayerful about the things that we do, about the major life decisions that we make, and about the small decisions in life. But just not to put so much pressure as if just for you, there's a super special plan and you better figure it out or you're going to throw the whole thing off. Again, that's an idea that's not biblical. All scripture What did I just do? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is profitable for teaching us about God, about his gospel, about his plan for salvation. Scripture is profitable for showing us teaching, reproof, and correction. I said at the beginning that the Bible is not just a book about moral living, and it's not just about that. But the Bible certainly does speak to how we should live. 
it's just important to understand the source of the Bible's teachings, that it's the word of God. It's not some philosopher's opinion on morals. It's not Plato's Republic. It's not written by Buddha or Lao Tzu. They aren't Grimm's fairy tales. It's the word of God, the creator of the universe. And for a person who is in Christ, who is studying the word of God, in that we are convicted of sin. We are pointed to righteousness and what God desires for us. That's part of the process of sanctification, God making us holy. One of the chief avenues for that is knowing his word. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. Through knowing the scripture, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Knowing God's word. As we begin to wind down, I think it's helpful to tie together the doctrine of sola scriptura and why it was important in the Reformation and why it's important today. <clears throat> A rich tradition was developing in the early church. There is value in seeing how the Bible was interpreted. There's value in seeing how the Bible was interpreted in the earliest generations because those are the people who are closest in time to the writings of the New Testament. I remember when I was in college, when I was in crew, and it always stuck out to me. The director for crew used to say, if you're reading the Bible and you come up with an idea that nobody else has ever had, it's wrong. <laughs> and I truly believe that. Some of the smartest people who have ever lived have studied this book. Almost 2,000 years of church history. So there's value in a sense of what the earliest Christians thought about the Bible. Fortunately, we get glimpses of, the, glimpses of that in the Bible. The letters of Paul written to churches, giving instructions. We see glimpses of the early church in the book of Acts. We see how churches are doing in the book of Revelation. Tremendous grace that we, we, we get some insight, again, because God's word gives us what we need. Tradition has its place. Tradition of scripture, of how it's been interpreted. 2,000 years of time after Christ. We get the benefit of centuries of Christians who have come before us who have plumbed the depths of the words of God. We benefit from their thoughtful reflections of Scripture. But even in that, seeing the infinite depths that his word has. And I think that's all significant because there's a mistake that we can make with the idea of sola scriptura. I said a minute ago that if you read something in the Bible and you're the first person who's ever thought it, it's wrong. The reformers did not think that they were doing something that was against tradition. Rather, they thought that they were going back to tradition. Back to the tradition of the New Testament and back to the tradition of the what are called the church fathers, the early theologians within the church. They were heavily steeped 
in the writings of these men. But they felt that the church tradition had gotten to a point where it was essentially viewed as being necessary to have an authoritative understanding of Scripture from the church. And the reformers thought that this was problematic. Because if the final appeal of doctrinal matters goes to the church, then the Scripture isn't truly the highest authority the church is. Now, perhaps you've heard that before, especially if you've ever, ever studied church history or the Reformation. That as being part of the historical backdrop for the, for the Reformation, for the doctrine of sola scriptura, perhaps you've heard that before. But there's also another aspect to it. You have sola scriptura, scripture alone, not just tradition and scripture. But also during the Reformation, you had movements on the other extreme that went totally away from tradition and where church communities essentially revolved around an individual person's interpretation of scripture. You could call that solo scriptura, sola and solo. That still happens in some circles. Really, I think that idea, I think is the caricature a lot of people think of when they think of sola scriptura. where personal revelation is given weight which is near that of Scripture. We see that sometimes in charismatic groups, some, not all. Between appeals to, to tradition that developed and between personal revelation, between those, we have sola scriptura. But the Bible itself is the authority. That Scripture interprets itself. Scripture teaches the doctrines we need because it tells us what we need to know about the gospel of the Lord. That it's not just about inventing traditions. That it's not just about what some sort of spiritual guru thinks about the Bible. But that in sola scriptura, the idea is to be in fidelity, in study of the word of God, submissive to the word of God. I think that's a good warning for many of us. I think there's a, an irony that we focus on sola scriptura, but at the same time, I think a lot of Protestants get really this sort of fanhood for a certain biblical teacher. And there's a lot of great teachers. I'm not saying that there aren't. But just to keep in perspective that it's the word itself that we are submissive to. The Apostle Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, in chapter 3, verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul's situation, people were becoming followers of a certain disciple. We follow Christ. Again, in our day and age, I think there are many, I follow John Piper, or I follow Beth Moore, or I follow whoever. And again, I'm not saying that these people have nothing good to teach us from God's word. 
but to not make the mistake of getting so enamored by a certain teacher that what they say basically becomes gospel to us. That we have to know what they think about something before we can have, study it and weigh it in the light of Scripture. Again, being faithful to Scripture. Twisting the words of God is almost as old as humanity. It goes back to the original sin. God had made a command that they could eat any tree of the garden. But they could not eat the tree, the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And the serpent approaches Eve. Did God say you couldn't? Twisting the words of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Questioning God's word. I think our society does that with a lot of things. Did God actually say we have to believe in Jesus? Did God actually say hell exists? Did God actually say homosexuality is immoral? Twisting the words of God. Undermining the words of God. That the word of God is our ultimate authority. Putting tradition on the level of scripture. It's interesting that in the gospels, Jesus is constantly butting heads with tradition. He looks at tradition and he says, it is written, pointing back to the scripture living in total fidelity to the scripture. That traditions that had arisen at the time when Jesus walked the earth, that weren't in step with scripture. Scripture as our ultimate authority. Putting tradition on the level of scripture or putting, again, individual revelation. What individual people think on the level of scripture. We can't make either of those mistakes because either of those extremes puts far too much stock into fallible people. With sola scriptura, the Bible alone is the infallible word of God given to us from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may us be people committed to the study of your word, committed to faith in your gospel, continually growing in our love for what you have revealed, Lord. But more importantly, love for you, God. Trusting in you, knowing you, growing with you. In Jesus' name, amen.